1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, hello, John. I'm uh, glad that that we're fortunate to uh, get to record another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Of course, I am on the road once again this week to points yonder and uh, spending my life on the airlines. Um, I've resumed my address when people say Greg, where are you from? I say, ah, 3E on this airline or 4E on this airline. And they laugh about it, but it's true because now my uh, travel is picked up because uh, I have to catch up on uh, all the work that uh, I'm doing. So I am back on the road. How about you, my friend? Where are you hiding these days?
0: I'm still in Boston and, and for a couple more days, and I go off on the road myself. But I don't get 3E. I get row 18. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you got to move up in the world. You know, you and I both traveled in the very back of the airplane for all the years that we worked for the government. I have now decided that, you know, I'm not going to be living in battle class back there anymore. That, in fact, uh, especially with COVID, I can spread out a little more when I'm sitting in the front end of the airplane versus the back end of the airplane.
0: Yeah, actually, I was trying to be funny because on this particular trip, I am up front. Well, there you go. I spent the extra money just to have some space.
1: Absolutely, I mean that's that's really the reason for doing that is uh, is to try and you know get get more distance between me and my uh, fellow seatmates. It's uh, it is crazy, but um, yeah, I'm back at it, and of course it's always entertaining when I'm listening to these uh, safety briefings by the flight attendants because you and I have been pinging on this, especially me with regard to uh, the briefings that they're giving. The one thing about uh, flying on airplanes is, of course, I'm paying attention to all of the flight attendant briefings every time they give it. Not that I don't before COVID, but I'm paying even more attention now since COVID because I found that uh, the briefings, of course, uh, didn't contain some clarification about when the oxygen mask drop, whether you pull your personal mask off or not. And in our last episode, I was pleased because one of the airlines that I've been flying on who hadn't been briefing that changed their tune. They actually did start briefing that you'd pull your personal mask off before you put the oxygen mask on. But now I'm back on the road, and I happen to listen to the briefing, and it's gone back to the way it was. (laughs) So as I've been professing we have got to standardize this. I don't know if it's the airlines. I don't know if it's the FAA or whoever, but come on, really? Again, you know, you can't assume that everybody's going to understand. And while, yes, dropping of the masks in an airplane is an unlikely event, it's a very rare event, you and I monitor stuff that's going on around the world every day through a couple of publications. And there is one or two cabin events almost every day where the mask drop, and um, and while they may not be serious situations, again it's it's all about confusion. The fact that not everybody is a is a regular flyer, not everybody understands English, not everybody understands logic when it comes to well, it's logical to pull this mask off and put the other one on, but of course you know. If you go through the airport, which you're going to be going through this week, John, at every turn, there is a big sign from the time you walk in to the time you get on the airplane that says you got to be wearing a mask, got to be wearing a mask, got to be wearing a mask. And you can't take that mask off unless you're going to eat or drink, and then you got to put the mask back on. So with that penalty or that fear, people are going to go well they didn't talk about an oxygen mask so maybe i just put this mask over my <laughs> over my personal mask so it's nuts i want you to pay attention cuz uh, i want to report from you on the airlines you fly so that uh, i can see if uh, you know they're falling in step
0: i will do that
1: i will so i know that uh, you're getting ready anything come across your desk cuz you and i both monitor a lot of these publications and uh, clipping services from around the world, plus notifications we get from the FAA and up-sources. I've come across a couple. How about you?
0: Yeah, I've come across a couple myself. You know, of course, the MAX draws your mind and your eyes right to anything that says MAX. And I see that the uh, Allied Pilots Association is concerned about the checklist, and it seems to be the same concern that the Europeans have raised the certification authority for the European authorities has raised it about the checklist on the MAX. So it's interesting that they didn't raise it the first time around either way. But be that as it may, it does appear the MAX is getting close to, to getting back in the air, which from an accident investigator's point of view, Boeing has fixed the cause of the accident. Now, I'm not going to yet talk about the other issues around the MAX and certification, because still, it's still being played out. So I'd rather not speculate, but we will be talking about some of those problems that have come to light the way Boeing certified this airplane, and whether it was proper or not proper, not just in the legal sense, but it didn't make common sense for them to do it that way. So we'll get into that down the road at some point in time. Good. Good.
1: Yeah, well, I came across something. Uh, as much as I beat up on our former agency, the National Transportation Safety Board, they did put out something recently. Um, it's a what they call an NTSB safety alert. They addressed aircraft flying in snow. And so, while that seems kind of you know benign to us pilots, going, yeah, well, we know the dangers of flying in snow. I mean, that's that's just common sense, but they bring up a good point and the safety alert was really targeted towards more of a professional aviation operation to an airline um, because they're talking about dispatchers and pilots making sure that they understand all of the the weather and that kind of thing in their pre-flight planning but what i didn't read the entire safety alert but I believe that the target audience for something like this really needs to be general aviation. Over the years, I've investigated I don't know how many accidents involving in-flight icing or flight in snow, where snow has caused engines to fail, piston engines to fail because they get induction icing and things like that. And I think this is a perfect opportunity. We are now in our, I think, the second day of fall right now, but icing conditions been around all year depending on one what part of the world you're in but two what part of the atmosphere you're flying in because you could get in-flight icing i recall an accident years ago and i think you do too john it was an embryo down in uh, the bahamas or in bermuda or something like that they were climbing out in this embryo and they iced up at 23,000 feet i mean it's tropical down there but as you get up in elevation in altitude Of course, the temperature drops and stratus layer clouds, those are ice crystals and things like that, leads to in-flight icing. So I think for the general aviation pilots that are flying out there, one, they need to understand the difference between airplanes that they fly that are actually certified for flight into known icing. They call it FICI, flight into known icing. That is a difference as far as category and certification because the airplane does have equipment on it so that it can be flown into known icing conditions. However, those airplanes that do have some de-icing equipment, inflatable boots or what we call a weeping wing, where you got millions of little holes drilled in the wing and it weeps some sort of alcohol, ethylene glycol type substance, heated props, they have electric elements or electric windshield heaters and things like that. There's a big difference because that kind of equipment is intended to give the pilot assistance in getting out of those conditions, not continuing flight in those conditions. And and general aviation pilots really need to understand the difference and, of course, understand in their evaluation of weather conditions, the freezing level and the moisture content and that kind of thing. Because... Flying in route, point A to point B, you can run through layers of ice very easily and unbeknownst. Some of that ice is insidious. Of course, some of it is very obvious, but icing on a Cessna 172 can be catastrophic versus the same kind of icing on an A320 Airbus. So when you listen to a PIREP and an Airbus captain says, yeah, we've picked up light rhyme. Well, light rhyme in that 320 could be serious to extreme icing on a Cessna 172 or a Piper Cherokee. So you really have to pay attention.
0: Yes, getting weather and root weather too for GA pilots has cost more than one pilot his life by not paying attention to it.
1: Yeah, I've done a lot of accidents over the years. So now is the time to be thinking about it because we're in the fall, winter season. This is where icing becomes prevalent. And of course, Snow events become prevalent, and in fact, we had a snow event in Colorado in September where it snowed, and it snowed quite a bit up in the high country, and snowed quite a bit down in Denver. It doesn't matter what time of year, per se. It's just that you really need to start boning up to be flying in these kinds of weather conditions. It's a change of season, both for the environment and for pilots.
0: You know, a few days ago, I was off on one of my little uh, local adventures, and I went back by Cambridge New York, that little airport that had the j three now i I route myself by that all the time when I go up in that direction uh-huh i I don't know why i get this I get this feeling that I might be going to fly that airplane in the springtime, but anyway, yeah uh, it was uh thirty three degrees when I drove by the airport at nine o'clock in the morning, and there was no activity, but guaranteed it was there was a lot of moisture there was a lot of fog in the low areas, so uh, anybody flying those little airplanes that morning had to pay particular attention to to the dew point and the and the conditions
1: yep you know that if you got frost on the grass you got frost on your airplane if it's sitting outside so
0: yeah what about inside your carburetor yeah well nice pressure drop right there in the venturi guaranteed to make ice if you got any moisture
1: yep exactly so now's the time to start boning up for your winter flying from a general aviation perspective
0: no, I'm not going to do winter flying. I want to do spring flying.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the airlines, you know, they go through this cycle. They have winter ops procedures. So now a lot of the training programs, their recurrent training, this is where they start emphasizing winter ops. And so we should adopt that kind of mentality in the general aviation arena. And that is, you know, September, October is the change of season. So now is the time to get uh, prepared for winter operations if you continue to fly.
0: You know, I'm I'm taking a note right now. See, it's
1: obvious you can't talk and write at the same time, John.
0: That's right. But I just made a little note to <laughs> I made a little note for myself that uh, maybe our next podcast, we'll do our next couple podcasts, we'll do some winter flying tips for GA pilots.
1: Yep. Yeah, because there are a number of things that we should definitely talk about accidents that. At least uh, I've investigated, and I know you have, where we can provide some lessons learned, something that uh, the pilots can take with them as well. So, and one of our major sponsors of EMCO Insurance, I know that, uh, you know, they insure a lot of airplanes. And of course, you know, one of the big concerns is whether or not when there is a serious accident or incident, was the aircraft equipped, and was the operation conducted appropriately. The insurance companies get concerned about that because the loss rate for general aviation in the wintertime, everybody wanting to go skiing. They got fall break and and Christmas break and that kind of thing. You know, people are, are racing the clock, trying to go out and you know, go on a ski vacation, go places, and and because they push those weather limits, next thing you know, we have a lot of weather-related accidents. And and uh, Avemco, like many of the other insurance companies, are concerned as we change seasons um, that you know the accident rates do tend to spike a little bit, especially around the holidays, with Thanksgiving coming up, and Christmas, and New Year's, and things like that. So,
0: yeah, they even insure you.
1: <laughs> yes, they did. Yes, they did, and, uh, and they will hopefully continue uh, as I get another airplane here shortly. So, yes, I, uh, I appreciate the fact that uh, they did insure me, and they've been very good to me. I had a few minor claims with my previous airplanes, but unfortunately it wasn't me that did it. It was other pilots flying my airplanes. but uh, they handled them very well, and I couldn't ask for uh, for better folks. I did read, though, an article and some threads on Facebook on some of the aviation blogs about people shopping insurance and the fact that the insurance rates across the board have just skyrocketed thirty, forty, fifty percent recently. A lot of it is due to COVID. A lot of it is, of course, spreading the joy because we we do get these major losses. They have to spread those losses, the cost of those losses across the industry, and everybody pays the price. It's kind of like when you're uh, driving a car. You know, some of the major losses in states where there are a lot of accidents, they try to spread it across all of the carriers and insurance rates. So. But that shouldn't discourage you. And I think everybody should talk to a VEMCO, at least start there because uh, they're going to give you great service. They gave me great service and they continue to do that. So, well, my friend, I know that uh, our previous podcast, we talked about an accident that I was the investigator in charge on American 1420 down in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was an MD 80 that was uh, landing and ended up getting into an overrun situation in a thunderstorm that was moving across the airport. And uh, pilots lost control of the airplane on landing, ended up going off the end and into a very stout steel structure that holds the approach lights for the opposing runway, which uh, induced not only a lot of damage to the aircraft, but probably resulted in the majority of the fatalities from that impact and, of course, the post-crash fire. And I know that uh, you wanted to break it up in a couple of pieces where we talked in the general investigative process. But now this podcast, we're going to dissect the cockpit voice recorder to give the folks at least a little more detail as to what was transpiring in the cockpit with decision making and discussion between the two pilots as they approached an airport that was clearly In a convective area, there was a thunderstorm in the immediate vicinity, as well as the surrounding area. And uh, the decisions that were made by the pilots either influenced by fatigue or the fact that they were pushing their 14 hour duty limit or a combination of both, self induced pressure, get their itis, all of these terms that we use in accident investigation to describe some bad decision making on the part of a pilot
0: Uh, yes and there's a lot of that in this recorder
1: and the thing that amazes me john and it still amazes me to this day is that you know one of the pilots was the chief pilot for american airlines at their chicago base so he is the pilot who is to lead by example he is the mentor pilot he is the one that sets the standards he is the one that enforces the standards And so he's flying on this trip, presumably for proficiency, since being a management pilot, they don't typically fly the line. And then, of course, the first officer on this airplane, who is experienced, he he came from the charter world, flew Learjet, so he had the qualifications to become an airline pilot, ended up going through training, and he was still in his uh, initial operating experience period on this particular flight. So now you have a new first officer flying with a seasoned management pilot. And you can tell when we read through this CVR that the captain is behind the airplane because he doesn't fly all the time. And the first officer is trying to be helpful and in some cases is a little too helpful, which I think, influences some of the decision-making in the wrong direction. That's
0: pretty obvious in a couple of points, and we'll point that out. I've, put, uh, I've highlighted that, those areas.
1: And again, it's, it's these little insidious things. The bigger thing, and we've talked about this before as well, is that these are words on, on a page. So there is no real emotion that you can derive out of this because when we dissect the cockpit voice recorder for the purpose of ax investigation, while we are listening to it and we are hearing those voice inflections and we are hearing the emotion and the tone and, and just the, the either asymmetry or symmetry between the pilots in their verbal communication, we can't really relate that in a piece of paper. Because if I were to say, you know, as we dissect it, you know, the captain said this, laughing hysterically and everything else, well, that's my opinion, but that may not be the opinion of the group listening to it. So these words are very factual. It is basically a verbatim transcription of the exact words, but there is no description of emotion as these words are being spoken so that you have to keep in mind when you read cockpit voice recorders you can see that some of the conversations are very disjointed some of the sentences and it's funny because when you read this you don't really understand well why didn't they complete that sentence why didn't the captain finish saying what he was saying or why didn't the first officer do this because that's the way we talk in the real world a lot of us as we start to say something, somebody else will jump in with a comment and cut you off mid-sentence. And that's what's reflected in the cockpit voice recorder is these real-time discussions back and forth, real-world discussions where a pilot may start to say something and another pilot cuts them off and they never finish that complete thought. From an investigative standpoint, you're going, God, I wish he would have <laughs> finished that thought so I knew exactly what he was talking about or what she was talking about.
0: Yep, that gets... You know we are such abbreviated speakers, not only in the cockpit but also in the hangar and when somebody comes in that's not used to that, I can remember more than once they thought that uh, mechanics are a bunch of bandits just by listening to the way they would talk amongst one another when in fact there's a there's a level of banter and there's a there's such a shortcut of of words used to describe something
1: yeah yep and and the board when they have the group listening to the cvr if there is a a sound so let's say the trim there's a trim in motion sound everybody agrees they hear that sound is it a trim in motion yeah that's a trim in motion once everybody agrees then that's annotated in the cvr but there is no discussion there is no analysis of well why was the trim moving that's not done in a CVR. it's just okay here's what the pilots are talking about here's what was coming through whether it's on the intercom from a flight attendant in the back or one of the channels for the CVR is the two-way radio communication so that's laid in as well and in this case it's from the approach controller as the airplane was getting closer to little rock and so when we go through this you're going to get some flavor for the discussions that were going on, but from an, uh, an investigator standpoint, you start looking at it with a, a bit of a different eye. That is, okay, this discussion is it pertinent to the operation? Is it pertinent to the situation that the the pilots are experiencing at that particular moment? And Is there some diversion of attention because they're not talking about aviation stuff. They're talking about, you know, God, I'm tired or man, I can't wait to get to the hotel or, hey, did you ever eat at that great restaurant over there? You know, things like that. So we look at all of those as elements of dissecting the CVR because when we talk about human factors and distractions and situational awareness and decision making, whether it's timely or appropriate. These are the kinds of things that we have to ferret out of not only listening to the cockpit voice recorder, but then going back and really digesting the
0: words as well. Yes. Well, let's pick up the, the voice recorder. It starts at, uh, well, the transcript for this accident starts about 30 minutes before the event occurred.
1: And John, this was a, as I recall, I mean, you you worked on them all the time. This was a 30-minute recorder, if I remember right. right. Yes. So it, we're getting the last 30 minutes of what transpired in the cockpit prior to the accident. Yeah, we now have two hours, which gives us a better understanding. And in that case, if we had a two-hour recorder, we would have probably picked this flight up as they were still at the gate in Texas.
0: Which would have been nice, but it wouldn't have added anything to the accident. But it would have been nice to put ourselves in in their seats what's going on, all those outside influences that affect them. I mean, they're clearly tired because their their day started in the morning. And here it is, 11.20 at p.m. And they were in the same time zone in Chicago. It's Little Rock. So it's uh, they've already had an uh, over 12-hour day. Actually, it's pushing a 10.30 report. So they're pushing 13 and a half hours.
1: Yep. They were bumping right up against their duty day and as we talked in the previous podcast when you look at that yeah the duty day is important because they're bumping their 14 hour duty day but that doesn't include how long both pilots have been awake because you know they didn't wake up and start their duty day they woke up prior to the start of their duty day so if you add two or 3 hours on the front side of that now you got a very long day you're pumping 17 18 possibly even 19 hours those are long days and now Of course, they're flying in convective activity, weather conditions, that is challenging weather conditions that is going to take a lot of mental gymnastics for them to circumnavigate because they're having to listen to what's going on from the ground, from air traffic controllers. You got to pay attention to what other airplanes are doing in the vicinity. Of course, they're monitoring their weather radar, things like that. So there's a lot going on and that mental gymnastics is
0: fatiguing as well. It certainly is. Okay, so why don't we just take it from eleven, eleven nineteen, where it starts, and they have a discussion about the, the temperature in the, in the cabin with the passengers.
1: Yeah, that's typical type banter, you know. They want to make sure, because probably one of the flight attendants had called up previous and said, hey, some of the people are too cold or too warm or whatever. So uh, they were probably adjusting the temperature. Now, they're at an altitude of around 25,000 feet at this point. They're in the general vicinity. They're probably 150 miles from Little Rock at this point. They're getting ready to descend and start the approach, their final approach, into Little Rock. So these are just in-route cleanup items based on what a flight attendant may have called up and asked and and told them. So they were doing that, and they were discussing that.
0: Okay, and at 1121.45, one of the things that I— it drew my eye to in this report was that they're almost down to maximum landing weight now you know landing on a, a wet runway in stormy conditions they should have had their antenna on super sensitive they should have been paying a lot of attention to the weather and i don't see a lot of attention to the weather but we'll get through that in a minute but it's just they're aware of their landing weight which affects your stopping distance and uh, also It might be worth noting to everybody out there that at the time of this accident, the penalty for wet runways was not as severe as it is today. As a result of uh, this accident and and, uh, Southwest Airlines accident in Midway, that the FAA came down with a uh, new set of numbers for the airlines to calculate their landing distance to take a bigger penalty for a contaminated which they call, whether wet or snowy, they call it contaminated runway, so that you have to allow greater distance. And that really comes to play in some airports like Midway, where it's it's barely a 5,000-foot runway. And sometimes the landing distance called out will be 46 or 4,700 feet. Well, now with the new penalty that the FAA imposes, you may not be able to land there. And an airplane as heavy as this MD-80 is now, that would grossly affect their stopping distance.
1: And I think an, another point, John, before we move on, real quick, and that is the crew knew before they left Dallas that there was going to be weather in the area. So they had some challenges ahead. They were talking about the fact that uh, they had some merging thunderstorms that created this bowling alley effect. So they kind of knew what they were getting themselves into and and probably had some level of expectation i think that what got missed and and we're going to point this out a little further into this discussion is the fact that they made an assumption and the assumption was the fact that this storm hadn't affected the airport and things were dry and they're going into a dry environment and that you know all of this convective activity happened to be going on around the airport not necessarily at the airport. So their head was already in a different place. It was in okay, we're going into this environment. Yeah, but we're going to a dry runway.
0: Yeah, I mean, in fact, he comments here at 231123 23, that we're right on the edge of the storm. So he they thought they were missing it.
1: Exactly. I mean they're they're skirting the edge. Of course they're they're watching it on weather radar. So they know where it is. And oh, by the way, they're looking out the window and they can see the flashes of lightning. So they, they know what's going on in the environment. The air traffic controller was talking to them and said, yeah, your radar is better than mine. You know, you probably have a better handle on what's going on out here.
0: Okay, so moving on down to 1123, all right, we can see the sound of a yawn. A very interesting comment on the recorder. A little more confirmation that 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 in this case it's they can't determine which crew member it was, whether it was the captain or the first officer, but one of them was yawn had a yawn yep
1: and and of course, the captain made a statement, boy, this is too much, and when you when you look at it from a human factor standpoint and comments like that, that is a trigger for us to start you know, thinking about fatigue, we know what time they got up, we know what their duty day was, we know what time of night it is, we know what kind of conditions they're going into, we know how they spent their day, and this is the kind of trigger that gets the human factors folks spooled up as to really dissecting, is this a fatigue event, and did fatigue have any kind of influence on the decision-making in the air and the performance of the pilots?
0: Yes, well, it's clear that, it, that uh, it did have at least some play in this. Okay, and they uh, they start running through the checklist after that. They had a, a little light moment of discussion that lasted uh, about 25, 30 seconds. And then they went right down and started doing the uh, center pumps, turning them off and, you know, sounds of clicks with switches three and thrown.
1: Yep. and And so, you know... Those are, again, those are, you know, just, you know, normal chatter comments and things like that. The first officer says, there's your big dilly." We we went over that word a number of times. We talked to people that knew this guy and, and that kind of stuff. And we assume at the time of the accident when we were investigating it that he was talking about that there's some weather out there. And he was using some creative, colorful terms to to describe it. Because on a follow-on comment by the captain at eleven twenty-five, which is basically three minutes after this whole discussion's really started, he says, we gotta get over there quick. And again, that's a reference to them racing the weather and racing the clock. They know what the weather is, they know that it's closing in, it's it's getting worse. And the first officer responds, Yeah, I don't like that. That's lightning. So they're looking out the window. They know that anytime you got lightning in the weather event, it's not good.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And and of course, as they approach Little Rock, uh, the captain makes the comment, that's about as far as we can go. So whatever track they were on, if they stayed on that track, they were probably gonna penetrate some of that weather. So uh the first officer comes back and says, Yeah, I'd say right about uh, maybe a little bit more, and that's about it. We could start down here pretty soon. So it's obvious now that they're deviating around the weather. They've altered course to the right, and uh, they're trying to deviate around some of the weather as they get closer to Little Rock. And so this begins to tell the story for the investigators, because not only are we using flight data recorder, but now we're looking at their flight path. Compared to weather overlays from satellite weather, we're looking at Doppler weather radar stuff so that we can see, okay, when when they're deviating, are they in any kind of precipitation? If they are, what level is it? Is it green? Is it yellow? Is it a red? Is it a pink or a purple or whatever? That's what we're looking at. And, and the flight path of this really becomes prominent as they get closer to the airport.
0: Yeah, and then they start talking about the bowling alley again. So they know they're, they're heading into this tunnel, trying to thread the needle. Yep. They're
1: trying to shoot the gap If they and, and trying to get down. And, of course, the first officer is leading the uh, the discussion saying, hey, you want to go down? You want to go down? And the captain's going, nah, no, not yet. Uh, pretty soon, but not yet. Um, so I call that hinting and hoping. There's a little bit of hinting and hoping. First officer's thinking, hey, we should get down. The first And the captain's thinking, well, no, we'll just stay here for a little longer.
0: Okay. Well, then they get cleared to 10,000 feet.
1: Now, one of the issues that came up in this investigation, John, is the fact that at the time, American Airlines had a different kind of checklist philosophy. They were using what's known as a silent checklist, where the non-flying pilot would run the checklist items, and once the items were complete, they would announce... The whatever checklist they ran as being completed, and the first officer did that. He uh, at 11:28 he said descent checks are complete. Now one of the issues that we have with that as investigators was one we know what's supposed to be done because we got a copy of the checklist, but we don't have any way to validate whether or not those actual tasks had been completed, because without a challenge in response where you know. Center pump switch off. There's nobody to respond and say, yep, center pump switch is off. There is no challenge in response. So there's a lot of assumption that goes into that checklist. This is a big issue later on in this accident because that is a critical checklist philosophy that contributed to this accident.
0: Okay, so that was at 1128 where he says that is complete. And then as the captain says again, we got to get there quick. So he sees the problems getting worse.
1: Yep. And, and in fact, they're paying attention. I mean, you got to give them that. They are paying attention. And in fact, the first officer, again, he kind of is prompting this captain, which when you go through this entire sequence, it, it's evident that the captain may have been a little behind the airplane and the first officer is a little forward of the airplane or ahead of the airplane and trying to help because he asked the captain, hey, do you want to sit him down in the back early? And he, uh, he gets on the horn and, and talks to the flight attendants and tells them that it uh, might be a little rough back there uh, because they're going, they're descending. They're, they're going to be in some turbulence, you know, get your service done early and, and sit down.
0: Yeah, in fact, had quite a bit of conversation about that.
1: Yeah, that went on for a little while. And as it should, I mean, again, that's the flight crew communicating with the, the back-end crew, saying, hey, look, you know, it's not going to get any better going forward. So get your stuff cleaned up, be safe, and uh, sit down.
0: Okay, and then, then they continue down with a checklist with the uh, the altimetus set and the hydraulic pumps on.
1: At 11.29, which right after that discussion with the flight attendants, the first officer says, yeah, that alley's getting bigger, closing to the west. So now we're back to the bowling alley reference. That is these thunderstorms that are collapsing together or coming together. And and the captain and the first officer engage in a conversation about them. You know, yeah, it is. The, 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 the captain responds. And of course, the first officer says, yeah, it'll be OK. And so they go through those checklist items. They're finishing up the checklist items. And at the same time, they're prepping now for landing at uh, at Little Rock, they're talking about what the configuration of the airplane is going to be with regard to their flaps. They're going to go flaps 40, and they're going to be at probably what 30,000. They got 30,000 pounds, 400 somewhere around there. So they're they're checking what their flap configuration is and all of their appropriate reference speeds are as they set themselves up for the approach.
0: Yes. So we can tell at least that they ran the checklist for those things.
1: Yeah. And again, they're plugged in. They're doing things pretty much on on a schedule. But at 11.31 at 22 seconds, this is a big issue. And it's the first officer as he's running the checklist says manual brakes. And the captain says, "Uh, yeah, manual brakes will be fine. This is one of those points where this is that the runway was dry. If you really think about if they had had information about whether or not the runway had been wet, would they have used manual brakes or should they have set the brakes, auto brakes? And you can set them at various levels because they are landing on a wet runway. And, of course, hydroplaning has been a big issue in previous accidents. Again, we addressed it in this accident uh, because hydroplaning became an issue here as well so the discussion is should the crew have used should the pilot have used manual brakes and was that manual brake decision based on at least the assumption that the runway was dry
0: yeah and right after that he makes a comment about he have to go to the right so there must be dodging trying to stay in the bowling alley or dodging some local weather
1: yep they they're, they're circumnavigating the weather as they get closer the pilots were intending to land originally on runway 22 which meant that coming from the west they were going to have to overfly or fly by the airport go to the east and then basically circumnavigate their way back 180 degrees back to the runway because they're landing to the west so as they're positioning the airplane of course there is thunderstorm activity in the area and it's basically all around the airport. So, as they are talking about it amongst themselves, they're getting information from Little Rock Approach. And one of those key statements from the approach controller is American 1420, Little Rock Approach here. We have a thunderstorm just northwest of the airport moving through the area now. Wind is 280 at 28 gust 44. I'll have new weather for you in just a few moments. When you read that, you're going, okay, I mean, we got a thunderstorm moving through the area. Okay, that should put us on high alert. But when you hear those wind values, 280 gusting 4-4, that, of course, those readings are at the airport. So the concern is, well, if that's the weather, do we want to keep going?
0: I can't believe that 44. Wow. I would have expected a lot more conversation around that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and of course the uh, the first officer responds, Yeah, we can see lightning. You want to repeat those winds again. Right now the wind, the current wind, is two nine zero at two eight, gusts four four. So they were originally gonna land on two two. You got the wind from two nine zero. So that of course is a seventy degree difference. So now they're doing the mental gymnastics. Hmm is that a crosswind is that a quartering crosswind uh, headwind you know and does that exceed any kind of limitations on the airplane and while they're going through those mental gymnastics of course they're starting to talk about it the first officer and the captain get into a discussion gust to 44 and the captain makes the statement right near the limit first officer responds yeah it's 40 degrees off what's our crosswind limit of course, they continue that discussion, and the captain says it's 30 knots, and the first officer corrects him and says, "No, no, that's we're we're out of limits because of the angle, but it's pretty close." And of course, then the the first officer comes back, and he's talking about the runway they're going to land on, and then um, again they start to do some more mental gymnastics, and they start talking about this crosswind limit again. And they're unsure between the two pilots because now they're saying, well, 30 knots is the crosswind limitation. And then 30 knots is well is, is the wet crosswind limitation. And then the first officer goes, no, no, that's dry. And, and the captain says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's dry. What about the wet? And the wet, and again, they're getting into this discussion and they finally figure out that the wet crosswind limitation is 20 knots. And then they say, no, it's 25 knots. Well, then they they just give up that discussion without any kind of clarification or finality. And they start talking to uh, the flight attendants to get them prepared. They're looking at NOTAMs for the airport, and they're looking out the window trying to hunt the airport down. Meanwhile, they, they haven't really resolved the issue about whether or not they've got this crosswind limit, one, understood, and two, whether it's going to apply. And three, they must have assumed that it was a dry runway, but in fact, we're going to know that it was a wet runway because the approach controller tells them, hey, we got a thunderstorm moving across the airport right now. And so this kind of bantering for investigators shows a, a period of indecision. You got the chief pilot who should have a lot of knowledge about these limitations. You got a first officer who just came out of training and probably had this information either in ground school and or during a sim period.
0: Wow. Interesting.
1: But these are the setups that we look for as investigators, because that in and of itself, as you continue to read through or listen to the CVR and the discussions that take place, they're trying to figure out their situational awareness where they are in relation to the airport of course the uh they're looking at the clouds out there and the captain says yeah looks like there's a stratus layer over there he says yeah the uh the controller told us that there was a storm just northwest of the airport they talk about the lightning they can see meanwhile the controller is providing them updates to the wind now for those of us that fly typically approach controllers or any kind of controller don't really volunteer a whole lot to you especially as on the approach normally pilot will ask for a wind check and of course the controller will respond with the wind in this particular instance what was interesting is that without being prompted the approach controller was given these guys regular wind updates talking about the fact that uh, because they have low-level wind shear alerting at the airport, he was giving them the boundary winds, which indicated that, in fact, there was significant wind shear in the environment of the airport. And again, I, I refer back to my hinting and hoping. I always read this and listened to it as the controller is trying to give the pilots a hint that, man, you don't want to land here <laughs> because the wind is just bad from these thunderstorms that are in the area and stuff. We got wind shear, go somewhere else, do something else, but you don't want to be here.
0: Yeah. I'm surprised. I mean, they, they, they had all the clues in the world, but they had to uh, get it in us. They wanted to get in, you know, I wonder if they were thinking about the outbound flight in the morning which was probably already going to be delayed after a long day, they weren't going to get a quick turnaround.
1: Yeah, and and you look at it from that standpoint, John, you got a management pilot. I mean, if they had sat in a holding pattern for 30 minutes or thereabouts, that stuff would have blown through. They would have landed on the backside. Of course, okay, so they get in a little later, but th- at least they're on the ground safely and that kind of stuff. Now, if they divert to an alternate, and I think if I remember right, the alternate was Memphis. Now they got to think about, well, how, what do they do with all these passengers sitting in the back? How do they put them up? Where do they take them? Do they bus them back to Little Rock? Do they put them in hotels? You know, all of that kind of logistical stuff that goes along with diverting. Do they sit there on the ground and then take off and come back to Little Rock? So you have those kinds of decisions that need to be made. The only decision that was basically made for them already which they didn't have to factor in and that was turning around and going back to dallas they had enough gas to do it but because the weather had closed in behind them that wasn't even an option anymore and then again they get into uh they get new winds uh the approach controller at eleven thirty nine 39 says uh, the wind's kind of kicking around a little bit now 330 at 11 okay all of a sudden now the captain goes whoa and it sounds like, okay, that wind has calmed down. It's only 11 knots. That's not bad. It's definitely not 44. And it's definitely not 28. But the captain says, yeah, but that's a tailwind for where we want to go and what we want to do. And then the approach controller, six seconds later, says, okay, right now, wind shear alert. Center field wind 340 at 1 0. North boundary wind is 330 at 25. Northwest boundary wind is 010 at 15. and immediately the captain says, we're going to land on runway 4, and the first officer asks the controller, can we land on runway 4? They're cleared. So now they've changed their entire approach from landing on runway 2-2 two, two, to runway 4, and it's based on the winds. Now, that's not the wrong thing to do, but. Now you got to start looking at, okay, they're going to try and do this visual. They can see the airport periodically. They know where it is. They're going to reverse course. they got to fly back to the west to get themselves established on an inbound to runway four. And, of course, they got to do that while circumnavigating this weather that is continually moving across the airport environment.
0: Busy time to be doing all of that.
1: And you and I have talked about this, John. It creates a high workload.
0: (laughs) And they're down low. They're probably bouncing around.
1: Yep. And again, the captain never really has a visual on the airport. He's depending on the first officer. And they get into this discussion about it. And the first officer says, yeah, I think that's the airport right below us. Then the captain says, yeah, it was. So it's obvious he must have seen the airport. And then the first officer starts talking about altitude. They arm the new altitude, they descend, but then the captain loses sight and situational awareness in relation to the airport. The first officer says, let's see, you got the airport? And the captain says, no, I don't have the airport. And then the first officer comes back and he says, yeah, there it is, I got the airport. He's looking out the window. And we presume that he's pointing or at least indicating where the airport is. And the captain still doesn't have it. And he asks the first officer, do you have the airport? And there's no response or it's an unintelligible response. Captain asks, again, is that the airport right there? And again, somebody answers, okay. But then the first officer says, see, I can't see the runway. I can't see the airport. And the captain says, I don't see a runway. And then the, the first officer starts giving him basically vectors okay just go out this way so he's going to help direct the the captain to get in a position to land on a runway that he doesn't really have a continuous doesn't have continuous visual contact with and and as they approach and they they wind themselves up to get into a position to line themselves up for the approach they get back into this discussion and the captain's, or the first officer says, it's gonna be right over there. The field's gonna be right over there. Now, we don't know where he's pointing or where he's indicating, but he's telling the captain it's right over there. And and one of the comments that the captain made that was very prevalent in, in this discussion was, well, you just keep me straight. You just keep me out of trouble. You send me where I need to go, is basically what he's saying. And the first officer responds, keep it right here. Keep it right here. So he's already given him a heading or at least a direction and just telling him, okay, just keep going the way you're going. And as that, as the airplane continues, here's the period of confusion for me. And I don't know if it confused you a little bit, John, but the first officer told the captain, okay, you're set up on a base. You're on a base for it, okay? And the captain responds, I'm on a base now. The captain never saw the airport. He didn't know what his relationship was to the airport. So when the first officer said, yeah, now you're on a base leg for final approach to runway four. And the captain's going, I am, basically. I'm on a base now. And then the first officer comes back and says, well, you're on a dog leg. You're coming in. There's the airport. The captain says, I lost it, meaning the airport. Then the first officer comes back and he says, it's right there. You're, you're on a downwind. See, it's right there. So he's told the captain, you're on a the base. Then he comes back and tells the captain, no, nah, you're kind of on a dog leg. And then he comes back and tells the captain, no, nah, you're kind of on downwind. Those are three totally different segments on a visual approach or airport traffic pattern.
0: You know, what has got me hung up looking at this again, and I'd forgotten this. But a minute, at 1142, the first officer asked him about going on the ILS. In 1143, the controller asked him about using the ILS. Why, you know, I mean, when he's fighting for visual, why doesn't he just put the ILS on? And, And, you know, it should have been done earlier. But why didn't he just fly the ILS approach? Because that would
1: have given them precision guidance and they wouldn't be Mickey mousing around out there hunting for the airport. They would have had good situational awareness. They would have known exactly where they were in relation to the airport if they had flown that ILS. That kind of discussion goes on, John, where they're, I see the airport. I don't see the airport. I see the airport. And it, it's just, I mean, when you get into those periods of discussion like that, it's like, why are you still doing this? take some other action. And of course, uh, you know, the, the captain says, yeah, I know, you know, see, we're losing it. I don't think I can maintain visual. Well, if you can't maintain visual, then you better start to think about
0: plan B. Yeah, down that low, he definitely should have at least been on the go.
1: Yeah, because they're, you know, they're out there maneuvering around at about 3,300 feet. And, you know, on a dark and stormy night in a big airplane, it's not really what you want to be doing
0: and the captain keeps saying i don't see the runway even going a little further i had and the first officer saying oh yeah and yeah i got it it's right over there and then the
1: first officer confesses at 1144 yeah i had it but lost it with the clouds and that's what i was saying yeah what what, what were you saying that i can't see it we should be doing something else i don't remember reading anything about that in the cbr Now they're down to uh, 2,300 feet. They're still out there, and the captain says, yeah, I just never saw the runway. No, no, it's okay, like you were talking about. But they're still motoring along in space trying to get to this airport and get to this runway. Now here is the classic statement that to this day I use it in my safety presentations. I have put it on my desk as a reminder Here's the captain who really doesn't have good situational awareness. He makes the statement, I hate droning around visual at night in weather without having some clue where I am. Don't you think that should prompt some sort of action other than let's keep going to the airport? It's it's just hard to believe because, again, this is the chief pilot. This is the mentor pilot. This is the pilot that is supposed to not only set standards to some extent, enforce those standards, but represent those standards. And they're out there just floundering around.
0: You know, it appears from the banter that occurs right around that they didn't want to go out because the storm was out there. Yep. So that's just more pressure on them to get in.
1: But they did have some avenue Of outs, there were still some areas that they could have bailed out to, climbed up, you know, gone somewhere else, done something else. And I think just because that they had those momentary visual, that visual contact with it, that enticed them to keep going. First officer then talks about the fact that okay, and now we're at the base of the clouds, and they've now descended down to twenty three hundred feet. And the captain says, uh, where am I or where I am? We don't know what that's in relation to. And then the captain, as they get down on final approach, he says, ah, we're going right into this stuff. So it's apparent that there is weather in front of the aircraft. The captain's talking about the fact that they're going to penetrate some of this weather. And, again, they get into a discussion. And the first officer says, can we land We don't know who that was directed to. The approach controller had already cleared the folks to land, the captain, the first officer to land. He gave them the weather and the winds, uh, 350 at 30 gust 45. That is the last wind that was given to the crew. And the captain asked the first officer, presumably, can we land with that wind? And the first officer says zero forecast right down the runway. 3,000 RVR, we can't land on that, according to the captain. But the first officer says 3,000 if you look at – now, they're in a discussion. They're in this discussion about can we or can't we, what the RVR is necessary to land. And they're beaming towards the airport, motoring right along while they're configuring the airplane. And again, they're they're really unsure of their position in relation to the airport.
0: Very much so. And 400 feet off? It's crazy. I don't know where his head was.
1: They finally get themselves established on the final. So they've now motored around. They finally get themselves established on the final. They're reconfiguring the airplane, flaps 28. The captain tells... The first officer, or at least talks to the first officer, add 20, add 20 knots, and that's presumably for the wind shear. Apparently, at some point, they break out, they see the runway, and they say, okay, we're established on final. Well, there was some whether or not continue based on the RVR. Being 1,600 feet, because there are limitations for the runway visual range and whether or not if you get the, you know, if you have a specific RVR before you get established versus after you get established and things change because the weather is so dynamic, that became a discussion point for the crew while they're on final approach. So again, they're going through, they're finishing up the final items, configure the airplane, to 40 flaps. The first officer had to prompt the captain, hey, do you want 40 flaps? And the captain says, Oh yeah, I thought I called for it. So they get the 40 flaps and the first officer is again monitoring, watching what's going on. The captain says, Man, this is a can of worms. And at the last minute, basically seven seconds before uh they touch down, or actually 10 seconds before they touch down. The first officer makes the statement there's the runway off to your right got it and the captain says no now they're not very high they're only a couple hundred three hundred feet at this point you got the runway and the captain says no we talk about stabilized approach criteria especially in vfr versus ifr conditions you know if you look at it vfr you know you that's one thing i mean these guys are trying to go in visual But, you know, uh, IFR, you know, you're looking to be established 1,000 feet and, you know, coming down the pipe. They're only a couple hundred feet off the ground. And the first officer says, you got the runway? It's off to your right. And the captain says, no. And the first officer tells, you know, basically directs them, you're right on course. Stay where you're at. The captain finally picks up the runway and they're well, they're, uh, I'm sorry, they were at 500 feet when all that took place. And they were well right of the runway because they called for, one of the pilots said, all blank, cuss word, we're off course. And then the officer says, we're way off. And then the captain loses the runway at you know 100, 200 feet above the runway. I can't see it. The first officer says, got it. I got it. So at 100 feet, the captain regained visual, but he had to drive the airplane back to the runway. When they touched down, they did not touch down straight on the runway. They were were in a, a significant crab. And upon touchdown, the spoilers failed to deploy, the ground spoilers. Those spoilers are important because it kills lift on the wing so that you get a heavy footprint on the tires so that braking action is more effective. Well, doing this silent checklist, as we found out during the investigation, the first officer had called supposedly for the spoilers to be armed, but there's nowhere on the cockpit voice recorder we hear him call that checklist item out. And typically when that is called out, the the captain will arm the spoiler handle because it's on his side of the pedestal. So we know the ground spoilers weren't harmed. On touchdown, um, the airplane is sliding. It's skidding on the runway. Nobody ever verified whether or not the ground spoilers had either auto deployed or they should have been manually deployed. Nobody ever nobody ever verified or looked or even took that action. And so you don't have a heavy footprint for brakes. And the pilots are on the brakes. And, of course, because the airplane is light on the wheels, you're not getting any kind of effective braking action, plus the airplane is hydroplaning. And the captain has gone into reverse. And, John, you know that there is a limitation when you use reverse thrust. You know, And if you use too much reverse thrust on a tail-mounted engine, what
0: happens? You lose directional control. Why? You blank out the rudder correct you're going too fast for your nose steering
1: and so no, now they don't have any form of lateral control the pilots can't push the rudder pedals because the rudder is ineffective because they have so much disrupted airflow over the rudder from from the reverse thrust and because the airplane is still going too fast to use nose wheel steering even if you turn the tiller you're just going to scrub the rubber off the tires so now you have this airplane careening down the runway that's still a pretty good clip. If I remember right, it was better than 90 knots when they went off the end of the runway. It had a lot of mass and energy behind them, and they struck the localizer stanchion, the, the antenna, and it just shredded the the front end of the airplane since that's what struck it before the airplane then went into the uh, the approach light structure. When you go through these elements and you listen to these conversations, And you start to dissect and analyze, John, you know, we do this all the time. You know, we call it human factors, but it's human interaction. And, you know, you start to pick up, well, why didn't he ask that question? Why didn't they abandon the approach? Why didn't they take another course of action? What more information did they need to make a different decision? And the unfortunate thing is for us investigators is that one of the pilots died. So we don't have the ability to ask him, and the other pilot suffered significant injuries that some of the answers that we got during the course of the investigation and interview weren't necessarily backed by fact, so whether that's a product of you know, just trauma or whatever. So we try to put some logic to some of these things, but it's very difficult, as you know, John, We can't read their mind. We can't get into their position. We don't know what they're going through. The timeline is very compressed. And, you know, all you can do is, again, ferret out. You know, they made a bad decision.
0: A half a dozen of them. At least. Despite some cues. I mean, the one cue from the the air traffic controller, and that should have raised some alarm bells in both their heads. He was trying to tell them that he didn't think it was a good idea to come in.
1: Yep. The thing is, John, we as investigators have the luxury of looking at the aftermath and dissecting accidents like we just did. That crew is working in a timeline that's a matter of seconds, making decisions on the fly, taking information, trying to process it.
0: When you're fatigued.
1: Especially when you're fatigued. And we know that when I did the Guantanamo Bay DC-8 accident, we know the adverse effects of fatigue. It's like being significantly drunk. You have a bit of overconfidence. You have, um, you know, impaired decision-making and impaired physical capacity as far as physical performance. And so it's easy for us to to do what we just did. But for those two pilots up front, this was a, a circumstance that happened in a very short timeline, like all accidents. And while we don't mean to criticize, we do mean, through this kind of work, Acts Investigation and what we're talking about on our podcasts is pointing out how dynamic these situations are, how some of these decisions may or may not have been influenced, and if they are influenced, good, bad, or indifferent, what were the influencing factors, and trying to just educate Because from our point of view, we're trying to enhance aviation safety. So the question is, how do we do that? Better training, better use of procedures, more operational discipline. All of these things factor into enhancing aviation safety. And out of this accident, there were some benefits. American Airlines changed their checklist procedures. They uh, changed some operational procedures. And of course, the airport ended up putting in uh, what they call EMAS, which is a engineered material at the ends of the runway that if an airplane does overrun it, it goes into this collapsible cement to stop the airplane from going over the embankment. And of course, um, they've restructured the approach light system to a frangible structure so that if an aircraft does hit it, it doesn't rip it up like it did
0: with American 1420. Yeah, I don't think anything would have helped these guys. From stopping the airplane from breaking up because they went off, essentially went off a cliff.
1: They did, but that catwalk structure, because it was you know heavy steel, and of course it was engineered in case you know the river flooded, it had to withstand logs and everything else banging into it that were floating down the river. So it was it was very stout structure. Not thinking that an airplane would ever get into it. So, but you know these are very dynamic situations and the, the the lessons here I teach it when I teach my accident investigation courses and talk to you know to a variety of different pilot groups and everything else is it's decision making you know aiding and abetting yes you had the chief pilot here yes you had somebody that was probably doing you know a little more overzealous than needed to be In trying to accomplish the mission, rather than kind of being more prudent in their decision making, and taking some sort of alternate action, whether it be temporary—that is, sitting in a holding pattern, or going to an alternate, or more permanent—you know, taking you know a, a shot at another alternate airport and terminating the flight right there for the night. I mean, there there are these alternatives. We see these in a lot of different accidents, and it doesn't just mean airline accidents we see it with business aviation charter operators trying to accomplish the mission and of course general aviation pilots point a to point b i'm going to my home airport i'm almost home it's been a long day but i know it's right there i fly in and out of here all the time and next thing you know they find themselves in a position of jeopardy
0: yes well as i i was looking through some of the little notes that i made uh, on the printout i have of this and uh the number of times that there was cues here that that they, they should have taken time to think it out, the decision making, just it just defies logic.
1: Well, they never got back to what the crosswind limit was for the for the airport for the landing
0: and wind shear. Getting getting all the, you know I just saw three. I was going to count them. I didn't finish. Uh, three wind shear alerts from the from the controllers. I mean, how many airplanes have we lost? And MD80s don't do well in wind shear.
1: Yep. Well, what we found out was, of course, that, you know, in this, you know, hydroplaning has always been a big issue and, and the, the criticality of getting those ground spoilers up so you get a very good footprint. But what we found out also is that in this particular instance, thrust reverse on a tail mounted airplane like this, the engines mounted on the tail only account for 5% of the total braking. Of the airplane, the wheel brakes account for 95 percent of the stopping action, not the reverse thrust. And by you know blanking that tail and not getting the spoilers up and having that heavy footprint, those two items were
0: essentially ineffective. They have the cascades in this for brake for thrust reverser instead of the big buckets hanging out there. Yeah, which was uh, a maintenance. Nightmare with those great big buckets to deploy it.
1: Well, it's just, it was an unfortunate accident. There were, you know, again, the improvements to aviation safety were really changes of procedures and, and that kind of thing. That's really what we try to learn from all of these accidents. And while, yeah, John and I went through this in a very coarse way, it's very hard to do it in a podcast without actually seeing all the dynamic things. The flight path of the airplane going into the weather. If you look at the NTSB report, there's a bunch of stuff on the Internet that actually shows the flight path that we put together in charts that we use in the report and during the briefing I gave to the board where you can see that the airplane is flying into green and then going into yellow. And then of course, red, which is the most intense parts of these thunderstorms. So it's very dynamic and gives you a good perspective. And if you read the CVR transcript at points in space, you can see what these guys are actually talking about and referencing with regard to what they're maybe looking at with the weather. So again, this is only intended to try and be, you know, at least educational for, how we derive information that supports a, a probable cause and, you know, the factual basis for it. And then, of course, how we improve aviation safety because of
0: it. Well, this was an interesting accident. And, of course, it got American Airlines' attention in a big way because they did change a lot of things after this accident with their procedures, with their pilots' training. So it, it did drive some change for American in particular.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So A couple of asides. We've been adding little side stories to these events now for several podcasts. And I know that uh, there was one interesting side story with the first officer and a telephone. You want to share that with everybody?
1: One of the things that uh, after this accident, and I should say, after the at least initial part of the accident where the airplane came to rest, sitting at the accident site, the airplane is on fire. The first officer had his cell phone. And I mean, in the aftermath of this tragic event, he picked up the phone and ended up calling his wife and made a phone call. So he's on the cell phone. Of, uh, and, and of course, that was one of those curious things of why did you do that? Why did you feel the need to call your wife at that particular time? These are the strange events that take place that we learn about during the course of these investigations, how the human reacts in a very high stress, high anxiety situation, very traumatic event. People do strange things that one, they don't necessarily recall. And I've had a number of pilots, and John and I uh, know about one that we're going to talk about with U.S. Air 1016, where the captain made a statement to the first officer while they were flying the airplane. After the accident, when we interviewed the captain, he it was emphatic that he never made the statement that we said that he made. We even played the cockpit voice recorder for him, and he said, I didn't make that statement. So trauma has, you know, a variety of different effects on the human. And in this case, the first officer, I mean, through this trauma, had enough presence of mind to get his cell phone and make a phone call.
0: The trauma does do strange things to your head. Yeah.
1: And, and I know that you as a board member, John, you came out to the accident site. And as we've talked about on previous podcasts, the purpose of the board member is not only to be the, the face of the investigation, but also then to deal with some of the, the political folks that show up, some of the issues that arise and handle that while the investigative team focuses on the technical aspects of the investigation. And I know that you ran across several high-profile people when you were down there.
0: Yes, on one of my trips down, I actually stood with two high-level people at American Airlines, one of which was very high. I had the governor of of, uh, Arkansas, Huckabee, and myself, and we were nearby some uh, family members. We were watching and listening, and I can just say that there was four guys, one girl, three guys standing out there. There wasn't a dry eye to be found. So it uh, it really does grab everybody. People don't, uh, you know, as investigators, everybody puts on, tries to put on the face, tries to keep their emotions contained, but sometimes you can't do it. Yeah. You know, sometimes you do it back in the hotel at that night, but also sometimes you just can't wait until being back in the hotel. It, it grabs you. Uh, yeah. Grabs hold of you.
1: It does. And and this is the worst side of aviation. And um, it takes very special people to be able to do this job, not from the standpoint of going out and, and kicking tin, but, Keeping their emotions in check, maintaining that objectivity, understanding that it is, you know, there's a lot of people depending on the quality of the investigation. And the only way you're going to get a thorough and methodical investigation is to maintain your composure, maintain your emotions. Not start targeting because you think somebody's at fault or some organization's at fault. Yeah, those emotions run high and you get a little mad and get angry and things like that. But the whole purpose is to be objective in your collection of the facts, conditions, and circumstances and be even more objective when you analyze those facts, conditions, and circumstances so that you do have a quality probable cause. That is, causal factors and contributing factors that are meant to enhance safety, not indict people or organizations for doing
0: something wrong. Well, and that's one of the pluses for a party system. Because although every person that's part of the investigation has their emotional moments, it's pretty rare when those emotional moments coincide. You might have yours in the morning and someone else would have one late in the day, you know, triggered by something that they may have seen. Other people may be able to control it and have it when they get back in the hotel, when they climb in into bed. So it, it does affect everybody. I don't care who you are. It does affect you. And that's one of the reasons why some people can't stay on the go team forever. They can do it for a while, and then they need to find another job yeah. within the organization. or You know, many, many former NTSB investigators find their way over to other agencies in part at least because of that emotional stress
1: yeah and it is emotional it's kind of like being uh you know emergency room doctor or or somebody that you know deals with trauma every day police officers where i mean we're seeing the worst side of aviation we're seeing the death we're seeing the destruction and we're seeing the emotional effect on family and friends to a traumatic event and And that's why it's so important that as investigators, you you have to compartmentalize so that you don't get wrapped up in that emotion because you can't do your job if you do. So, well, my friend, I know that we have talked a lot this particular episode. Um, I enjoy dissecting these. I hope the uh, the audience does too. And, And we appreciate, you know, one, the suggestions of accidents that we should talk about or things we should talk about. Two, we always appreciate the feedback. I mean, I know we get a lot of pilots that, that give us feedback, talking or asking questions or saying, well, what about this? And that's not necessarily correct and things like that. Again, we're trying to paraphrase 18 to 24 months worth of work in a blue cover report in less than an hour and bring out some of the highlights as an education. But we do appreciate the suggestions. I definitely appreciate pilots responding and giving me more thorough explanations about things that we may talk about with systems or operational procedures and things like that, because this is always a learning experience. And again, we try to just get the highlights who don't have the time to really dissect it and and you know train it just because we are limited on time. But we do appreciate everyone's feedback. And even those who are non-aviators that are passengers or just aviation aficionados who want to learn more or are interested in things, you give us the ideas, you give us the suggestions, you give us your feedback, and John and I will try to address it, find accidents that highlight those particular points or find case studies that we can use to educate everyone. So you can always get a hold of us at Flight Safety Detectives, with an S on the end, at gmail.com we're going to be coming out with a new website we're excited about that so definitely look for that and we'll announce that when it comes up online and definitely take a look because we're going to be adding a lot of content to that in the near future we want to thank our our sponsors both PAMA and Avemco insurance they're great partners with us now and uh, we really appreciate their support cuz that's what keeps us going and we always appreciate any kind of support that we get from our patron listeners. And so again, this is what it's all about is just, you know, trying to keep everyone informed, come up with calls to action and educate because aviation safety is something that we all need to be concerned about because (laughs) I know, John, I'm on it every day just about. And I know you're going to be back in the travel cycle and you're going to be on an airplane a lot more as well.
0: Yes. My start Monday morning. Off we go and wild blue yonder.
1: Absolutely, my friend. Absolutely. Well, I'm always pleased to talk to you. I'm glad we we get to do this show. Uh, This is, you know, one of the highlights of my week. So it's always great to talk to you. I wish you safe travels this week. And I'm going to leave you with the last word.
0: So everybody, we talked a lot on this show. It's one of the longest ones we've ever done. And decision-making played a major role in it. So it's not just for commercial airline pilots. Decision-making plays a major role in all the GA accidents that we see. So please take the time to make a well-thought-out decision when you're flying, even before you're flying. Make sure you get the weather. Make sure you do all the standard operating procedures that we know work because they've been built on other people's mistakes, sometimes written in blood. So we want to help Share the word, increase your knowledge, and maybe prevent you from making a mistake. So please stay safe in your personal life, wear a mask, do whatever it takes to make sure that you don't get this damn virus. And secondly, if you are going to fly, please fly safely. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org,
1: and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next
0: time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.